and welcome to Sabbath School Study Hour. My name is Pastor Aaron Cruz. I'm one of the pastors here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I'm excited to present today's Sabbath School lesson with you. Now, the Sabbath School lesson is entitled The End of God's Mission. The End of God's Mission. And so our free offer for today is entitled The Final Events of Bible Prophecy. The Final Events of Bible Prophecy. It's a nice magazine styled um, resource here that if you would like to get for free, just call in to 866 788 3966. That's 866 study more and ask for offer number 856. If you live in the United States of America, you can also simply text SH1062 40544. And if you live outside of the United States and Canada, you can go to study.aftv.org forward slash SH106. Now, before we get started with the lesson, how about we bow our heads together for a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you guide us through this study about understanding the end of time and your mission, the end of your mission here on this globe. Help us to know this mission and participate in this mission as we're living in these end times. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as was mentioned, this is lesson number 13. This is the last lesson in this quarter, and it's entitled The End of God's Mission. Let's start with one of the key verses that we've been going over all quarter long, and that's Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This is what we call the Great Commission. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he shared with his disciples this commission of what he wanted them to do. Let's read it. It says, Jesus speaking, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to when? The end of the age. Amen. This is what Jesus was telling his disciples to do. Hey, look, guys, I want you to disciple people, baptize people, teach people all the things that I've commanded you, and then he ends with, I'm always with you, even until the end of the age, implying that this mission, this mission to evangelize the world would go on all the way until the end of time. This is not a mission that ends anywhere short of the second coming. Notice the language that Jesus also used in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. And then he gives the roadmap in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the where end of the earth. 
So in Matthew 28, Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. This is talking about time. And here, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to go to the end of the earth, right? Beginning here in Jerusalem, but expanding out to Judea, Samaria, all the way, all throughout the globe. And this is exactly what we see in the missionary endeavors recorded in the book of Acts um, with the early church. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, where we see another end passage. Jesus says, in the context of sharing what the last day events will look like, he says, in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So here Jesus is making it clear that before the end happens, the mission of carrying and preaching and proclaiming the gospel to all the world must come first, must come first. Now, if you notice, I highlighted the, the, the key words here, all the world and all the nations. You see, the God that we serve is a God that does not, he is not, how can I say it? He's not selective in those who he wants the gospel preached to. He is not, he, he is inclusive rather than exclusive. He wants the gospel to be preached to everyone. Here's a few passages that highlight the unlimited atonement that theologians call it, rather than a limited atonement, meaning Jesus dying for a few. We believe that Jesus, that the Bible teaches that Jesus died for all and offers the gift of salvation to all. And so thus, our mission is for all. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, we read that God desires all men, of course, and women, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is also anchored way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God tells to Abraham, or Abram at that time, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is in the business of preaching his gospel, giving salvation to all humankind. So we are to extend this mission to all people. Now, when we're talking about the end of God's mission, there's no better place to go then to the end of the Bible, and that is the book of Revelation. And Revelation is the final book in what we call the canon of Scripture, right? The last revelation that God gave to be included in the sacred text of Scripture. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Revelation 1, verse 4, it says, John to, this is a letter written from John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace, notice, from three different people. From him who is and who was and who is to come, that would be God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that would be the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the, get, the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So here we have the introductory to the book of Revelation. Of course, in verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? But here, this letter, this prophecy was first delivered to the seven churches that lived in Asia, 
about 2,000 years ago, and it says that it's from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus Christ. This is fascinating because we see there's this focus of the Trinity. All three members of the Godhead are active in trying to reach the world at the end of time. Notice what our quarterly, our lesson says on page 15. Going back actually to the second lesson in the quarterly. Even though the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, mission-focused evidences involving all three persons of the Godhead are numerous, including Revelation 1. We learn from this that the mission is not ours. It belongs to the triune God. As such, it will not fail. I just love that statement. This mission is God's mission, and he invites us to cooperate with him to share the gospel to the world. And as such, belonging to God, it will not fail. Now let's go back to Revelation 1, continuing on with verses 5 and 6. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, it's highlighted that those who are saved by Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are to be made as kings and priests. Let's take a moment and sit on that word priests. What does a priest do? What's the function and role of a priest? Well, when we read the Bible, we discover the role of a priest is to be that in-between between humans and God to represent humans to God and God to humans. This is the role of a priest. And this, according to Revelation, is the job of all Christians, all Christians who are saved. This isn't unique to Revelation. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we read, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, all Christians included in this, a holy nation to his own special people that you may proclaim, be witnesses, right? Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, a priest is that go-between to teach people about God. And here in Peter, and in Revelation, we are called a nation of priests. We are priests and we are to be missionaries to teach people about Jesus, about the character of God, about his salvation. So I just love how Revelation starts out on this note that we have the Godhead, the three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity that are there saying we are delivering the gospel to the world and we're using the priests, the Christians, who are called by our name to deliver this message to the world. Circling back now to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, which we already read, look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Our job as Christian priests, right, to teach people about God is right there in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So our job as Christians is to believe that Jesus is with us to the end of the age and to preach to all the people in the world 
in preparation for the end of this world's history to teach people all the things that Jesus has commanded. Now, what is the contents? That's what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of this lesson. What are the, what is the contents of this message, this last day message to be proclaimed to the world, to bring an end to God's mission? Well, let's go back to Matthew 24, verse 14 that we read earlier, but I want to look a few verses earlier at the context here, right? We look at verse 14 and it talks about this gospel, that this gospel needs to be preached into all the world. Let's think for a moment about what the word gospel means. The word gospel simply means good news, good news. So what, we, what I want us to do here in this moment is take a look at the context to take a look for where we can find good news, right? And notice that it qualifies the word gospel with the word, Jesus qualifies it with the word this, this gospel, right? So we're looking for this, right? What, what is the good news in this context? So let's read Matthew 24, starting with verse 11. It says, then many false prophets, is that good news? Nope. Will rise up and deceive many. Is that good news? No. And because lawlessness will abound, is lawlessness abounding good news? No. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be what? Saved. Ah, there it is. That is the good news. Salvation. Those who endure until the when? The end shall be saved. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. Who are these people who are enduring to the end? And what are they enduring? Well, if you look at the context that we just read, it says that there is a condition, there is an atmosphere of false prophets rising up and deceiving people. And what are they deceiving people about? Well, in verse 12, it says lawlessness will abound. Obviously then, the deception of the last days revolves around God's law. And the false prophets will be teaching people, telling people to disregard the law of God, thus resulting in a lack of love, a freezing over of the heart of love. But those who endure this condition of lawlessness, in other words, those who continue to keep God's law, teaching people, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching all people to observe all the things that God has commanded. So rather than practicing lawlessness, those who are on this last day mission will be teaching people to obey the commandments of Jesus in face of others teaching to the contrary, teaching lawlessness, etc. So, this gospel is to be preached to all the world. What's fascinating, when we turn to the book of Revelation that we're focusing on, which is the end of the Bible, the end of God's mission, there, there is only one place and one place only that the word gospel shows up in the entire book. And that is in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. The only time 
we read, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So when you compare Revelation 14, 6 with Matthew 24, 14, you see very clearly the same message being communicated. The gospel being proclaimed to all the world, to every nation. This is absolutely key. We are to understand what this gospel found in these three angels' messages in Revelation 14 entail if we are going to be true missionaries at the end of Earth's history. So let's take a quick uh, overview before we go into, before we dive into the details of this everlasting gospel of Revelation 14. We see that this everlasting gospel is comprised of three angels. These three angels messages. The first angel is a call to worship God as the creator. The second angel is a, uh, a pronouncement that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Then the third angel, which is the longest, is a warning against receiving the mark of the beast, worshiping the beast and his image. Then the climactic verse of these three angels' messages is in verse 12, where it says, here's the patient endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is followed by the harvest of the earth, the harvest of the earth that we read about there in verses about 14, 15. And this is the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is likened to this, this harvester, right? This farmer who's coming to the earth with a sharp sickle to reap the harvest of the earth. What's fascinating here, we see in verse 12, the patient endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God. Well, this is exactly what we saw back in Matthew 24, where Jesus said in verse 13, but here are those, excuse me, but those who endure until the end shall be saved. So here in Revelation 14, verse 12, are those who are patiently enduring by keeping the commandments of God. We read in the lesson on page 106, central to mission, God's mission, is the message. God's message, that is, the gospel. The message, the author writes, in a real sense, is the mission. The message is the mission. We must never lose sight of our special calling and mission, which is to proclaim to a lost world the hope found in the everlasting gospel, as well as to warn the world of what will one day come upon it. I just love how the author brings this out. The message is the mission. If we say we are Christians on a mission and we don't have a message, well, then we have no, no mission at all. The author goes on to say, it is urgent that the gospel be proclaimed and the serious news about Satan's strategies be exposed. And that is exactly what the three angels' messages and our mission are all about. So we are now going to be taking a deeper dive into these three angels' messages, which are the, the last message, we, what we call present truth gospel. The gospel in its present truth form to be proclaimed 
to the last day inhabitants of planet Earth. But before we go into those details, we need to back up from Revelation 14 and we need to look at Revelation 12 and 13 because these are chapters which set the stage for the end time message and mission of God's people in Revelation 14. So in Revelation 12, just taking a big picture look, we see that there is introduced at first a woman, a pregnant woman, ready to give birth, clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, having a garland of 12 uh, stars on her head, ready to give birth. And then a dragon comes forth, a fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, ready to devour the male child soon to be given birth. Now, as we read and study on further, we discover that this dragon is a symbol for Satan. And this woman is a symbol representing God's faithful people. And this child that the woman is giving birth to is none other than Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman, that there would be an offspring of the woman that would defeat the serpent, the dragon, crushing his head. Revelation 12 goes on to describe this war that broke out in heaven, then Satan being cast out, followed by Satan being defeated on the cross, defeated on the cross, where the, accusa the accusations of Satan are all proven to be false, and salvation is brought to the world. Then it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, and the dragon Satan persecutes the woman. Satan, after the cross, has gone after God's faithful people, seeking to deceive and destroy them. And then we have, in verse 17, the climactic final verse in Revelation chapter 12 reads, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here we have the, the stage has been set with Satan posed to make war and is making war against God's people. This is a theme that we call the great controversy or the cosmic conflict. Notice what the author says on page 106 of the lesson. He writes, it's hard to imagine how anyone can understand anything in scripture apart from the great controversy motif, which will climax in the last days. You see, the author understands that we need to understand everything in scripture, especially the last day message and mission of God's people in light of this great controversy, this war. Now, anyone who goes to war would be wise to get as many allies and friends as possible. Right? right now, we're living in a time in human history where Russia and Ukraine are at war, and both nations are looking for allies, right? That they can, you know, receive more power and, you know, military might and, and so on and so forth to help support them in their war. Well, this is not unlike what we read about in Revelation 12 and 13. The dragon, Satan, is going to make war against God's people, but he's looking for allies, and this is what we find in Revelation 13. We see the dragon calling forth, as it were, the sea beast and the land beast. 
These are identified later in Revelation and by scholars as the sea beast being the Antichrist and the false prophet being um, the earth beast. And Satan calls forth these entities, the sea beast, the earth beast, and it says in verse 4 that they worship the inhabitants of the earth, worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. Satan here in chapter 13 is putting together this counterfeit trinity. The dragon, Satan, counterfeiting God the Father. Uh, the sea beast, counterfeiting the Antichrist, counterfeiting Jesus Christ. And the earth beast, the false prophet, counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. And it's this satanic trinity that is putting together this final worldwide deception. And this deception revolves around worship. As people worship the beast, they're really worshiping the dragon who is Satan. Look at how many times in Revelation 13 we see repeated the word worship. They worship the dragon. They worship the beast. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Verse 12, uh, the earth beast will cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Verse 15, cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The whole thing is a setup of counterfeit worship. But this is followed. How does God respond to this system of counterfeit worship? Well, he responds to it with true worship. And we read about this in Revelation 14. Contrary, opposed to the worship of the beast, we see a call in the first angel's message to worship the true God. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is followed by, in the third angel's message, a warning against worshiping the beast. If you worship the beast, it is bad, bad news. So God, we see in Revelation 14, is responding. He is responding to the war. This is a, um, a counter, a counter offensive where God is responding to the attacks of Satan in this system of counterfeit worship by having his people, his faithful people and followers, proclaim this gospel message communicated in the form, symbolically, of these three angels. So in Revelation 13, we see a very gloomish picture of the last day people living on the earth. It says, all the world marveled and followed the beast. The majority is following the beast. But we see in Revelation 14, this group of the 144,000 who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this group who follows the lamb wherever he goes are the ones proclaiming symbolically these three messages. An angel literally means messenger. Angel means messenger. And so when it says these three angels are preaching this gospel, this isn't uh, Revelation telling us that we should be pulling out our binoculars and looking in the sky for three literal angels going out and preaching the gospel around the globe, but rather these three angels represent you and me. The, the messengers proclaiming the message on a mission to 
save the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, the everlasting gospel. Let's now dive a little bit more into the details here. Here is a slide that shows all three of the messages. You see the first, second, and the third angel's message is the longest. When you take a look at the first one, let's dissect it bit by bit. The first words out of the angel's mouth are, fear God and give glory to him. We need to understand that the first point in our message is to understand what it means to fear God and what it means to give glory to him. Really, this boil, fearing God boils down to trusting him and obeying him, believing that he is for us, not against us, and that he has all the power in the universe that he uses for his people, through his people, to proclaim his message to the world. Give glory to him rather than giving glory to things made by man, worshiping things made by humans. We should rather worship and give glory to the creator, the next uh, part in the first angel's message calls and tells us that the hour of his judgment has come. We as Seventh-day Adventists understand through Bible prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Revelation other chapters that we are living in the final judgment hour of human history. Right? We call it the Day of Atonement. Beginning in 1844, Jesus entered into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, beginning this final work of judgment and atonement in preparation for the second coming. This is part of our message, to proclaim the prophecies that point to this judgment. The next one is a call to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This, we understand, is pointing people back to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign, it's the seal between God and his people that identify him as the true God, as the creator God. It's a symbol of righteousness by faith, that God's people rest on the seventh day to acknowledge that there's no works that they can do to save themselves, but it's rather the grace of God alone that provides our salvation. So it's a call for people to go back to the Sabbath, back to the commandments, highlighting the one command that people seem to forget most frequently, the one that begins with the word remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is part of our message, which is our mission. Then we have the second angel, which is a call that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, for she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Who is Babylon? Well, if you want to boil down it very quickly, Babylon is all systems of false religion in the world. This would include even atheistic belief systems, uh, Islam and, and all the, the other you know, uh, the false religions in the world. These are all systems of salvation by works, ultimately, salvation by works, ultimately, that are not sustainable. And God's truth points to a system of salvation by grace through faith alone and a call to bring people out of religious confusion, out of the intoxicating beliefs about God that are out there in the world to, to set right the truth about who God is and the way this world operates. This is followed by the third angel's message that warns us against receiving the mark of the beast. Well, if we're going to warn people against receiving the mark of the beast, 
and worshiping his image, we first need to know who is the beast, right? Who is the beast and what is his mark? So part of prophecy is identifying who the Antichrist power is. Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, the sea beast. Who is the Antichrist power? Who, <clears throat> and what we discover is the Antichrist power is none other than the apostate Christian church of the Dark Ages, of who we refer to today as the Roman Catholic Church, this system of false religion. This is part of calling people out of Babylon, calling people out of religious confusion. It's our mission, which is our, mes our message, to proclaim these messages to the world. Then also notice the last bit here we have is uh, a warning that if they do worship the beast, they will be tormented with hellfire, right? Fire, brimstone, etc. So part of our message um, is to tell people the truth about the nature of hell. Now, this is all climaxed in verse 12, as we referenced earlier, uh, which calls for the patient endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Notice what Ellen White writes about these three angels' messages. She says, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Ellen White understood that God's mission at the end of time is completely wrapped up in the, pro the understanding, number one, the embracing, number two, in the proclamation of these messages. It's simply the gospel put within the context of the end of the world highlighting the, the false religious confusion in the world and calling people back to faithful biblical teachings. I'm very thankful that the Seventh-day Adventist Church itself has at its core, as its mission statement, the three angels' messages. Notice the Seventh-day Adventist Church's mission statement. It is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who live as his loving witnesses and proclaim to all people the everlasting gospel of the three angels' messages in preparation for his soon return. This is our mission statement. Our mission is the gospel within the context of the three angels. Notice what the author also highlights on page 107. In many ways, the three angels' messages with a call to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people is simply the present truth expression of the Great Commission. The Great Commission to make disciples of all the world, teaching them what God has commanded, preaching the gospel to them, is exactly what the three angels' message is, except within its present truth form. Now, let's, let's think about and talk about that present truth. Peter references present truth in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, though you know and are established in the present truth. To me, the most simple, basic understanding of present truth is this. 
what does the Bible identify as truth? Well, the first verse that comes to my mind is John chapter 14, verse 6, which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in other words, present truth, if truth is Jesus, present truth is simply whatever Jesus is doing. You see? So we need to look and say, well, what is Jesus doing? That is present truth. The present truth back in the time of Noah was this. There's a flood coming because Jesus was getting ready to cleanse the earth, to save the earth from all of the wickedness therein. That's what Jesus was presently doing. That was the present truth back then. When Jesus came at the first coming 2,000 years ago, the present truth was this. The long-awaited Messiah has finally arrived. Embrace Jesus as the Messiah and as our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Now, the present truth is this. Jesus is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary performing the last work of atonement in preparation for his soon return. Jesus is doing a work in heaven. This means we have a work to do today to call people back to the neglected and lost truths of Scripture, which point to what Jesus is doing now in the heavenly sanctuary. So present truth is simply whatever Jesus is presently doing. Now, let's talk a little bit about what the quarterly goes into in one of its lessons, and that is success in mission. Success in mission. I love the verse that is highlighted in the quarterly, I think it's so good to understand the framework um, of how we are to uh, gauge our success in preaching the gospel in our mission of proclaiming the three angels to the world around us. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, says Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul here uses the analogy, the metaphor of gardening, right, of agriculture. If you read, if you've ever read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus loves talking about plants. He's always giving these parables and teaching lessons communicated through the agricultural gardening cycle. And so Paul here says, hey, look, people are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, you know, Paul baptized me, Apollos baptized me, these are my spiritual leaders. And Paul says, look, enough with this. What ultimately matters is that we're following and being faithful to God. It doesn't matter if, if I baptized you or someone else baptized you. It's all part of this agricultural process. He says, look, I came to the church in Corinth, to the, to Corinth, the city of Corinth, and I planted, right? I began to preach the gospel and the seed, the word of God was planted in many of your hearts, but I had to leave. And I wasn't able to continually water and cultivate the garden. But Apollos came along 
and he watered the plant. He watered your heart and enabled the word of God, the gospel, to continue to grow in your life, right? And God ultimately is the one that brings the increase. He's the one that truly grows all Christians. So it's helpful to think about how we can be successful. Because some people say, well, you know, I, I once had Bible studies with someone and then I never got to see them get baptized, right? They didn't get baptized, you know, they got baptized 10 years later or five years later, longer after I was no longer, you know, in their life or living close to them. Or someone could say, wow, I just got a Bible study and I, you know, they, they were ready for baptism. And so I baptized them and that was a successful, you know, mission for the Lord. You see, we, we can never take credit for a baptism. We can never take credit for doing a Bible study. We can never take full credit for fully leading anyone fully to Jesus. Because everyone has, any person who comes to Jesus has had multiple influences in their life. So I view it as this cycle, or you could say a spectrum. Here we have, and I'll talk about this in a moment, uh, the personal ministries department of the General Conference has developed um, something that I think is extremely biblical, and it's called the grow cycle. You see, if you are going to use the analogy, the parable that Jesus described about planting the seed in people's hearts, the word of God that leads to salvation, we have to first prepare the soil, right? Anyone who, who has gardened before knows that the place to start is with the soil. You have to prepare it. You have to have good soil, remove the rocks, remove the thorns, and, and have uh, healthy, mineral-rich soil, right? Then the next stage is to plant the seed. And after the seed is planted, it needs to be watered. It needs to be protected from, you know, bad weather, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then eventually after it's grown and cultivated to full maturity, that plant needs to be harvested. And some people forget and they think that harvesting is the last step. No, the last step is actually preserving. What good is picking uh, fruit, a bulk of it, especially if you don't preserve it, right? So this is the cycle of evangelism, right? So we, how are we successful? How do we rank our success in mission? Well, it's this. Are you helping in the process of this cycle? Some of us we may only be able to prepare the soil, be good, um, be good friends. Friendship evangelism helps to prepare the soil and help to disarm some people's antagonism against Jesus and the gospel. So you're preparing the soil. But then maybe you move away and you don't get to see the seed, the gospel ever planted. You don't get to have Bible studies with that person. But someone later on starts to have Bible studies. Well, they can't take credit for having starting the Bible studies on their own because someone before them helped to prepare the soil. Of course, the Holy Spirit is very active in this whole process. Then as you plant the seed, Bible studies continue on, and eventually a decision, a complete surrender, and the decision needs to be made for Jesus Christ, and that would be the harvesting, right? Someone who is converted and ready to be a, a committed Christian and missionary. Then there's the preservation, right? As someone who becomes a Christian, they're a new baby, 
and they need to, you know, just as any baby needs to be taken care of and their diapers changed and they learn how to walk, right? We need to be um, continue to disciple and preserve those who come into the fold of God. Highlighting here a website, www.grow.adventist.org. I would encourage you to go to this website. This website has a ton of valuable resources that equip the Christian, that equip the missionary, which we all should be, in order to um, know, in order to have tools for each stage in the cycle of evangelism, this grow cycle. A few books uh, that are available for free on this website um, are helpful things called The Keys to Motivating Members and uh, to the keys to motivating members to witness, keys to personal witnessing, keys to giving personal Bible studies, keys to reclaiming the missing, etc. These are very helpful resources that are for free on this website. I would strongly encourage you to go there. Now, going back to some Bible passages, we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, that Peter says, Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving, there's our word for this lesson, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here, Peter says, the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. However, if you look closer, look a little closer, throwing the slide back up, that word your in the text is actually, is actually italicized, meaning it's not in the original text. So look at this. If you take out your from the text, which is not found in, in the original Greek, it changes slightly but significantly the meaning of the passage. Now we see that the end of our faith is what? Not just the salvation of our souls, your own soul, but rather the salvation of others. Woo! Now we're talking. The end of our mission, the end of our faith, Peter says, is not simply, yay, I'm in heaven and I get to be with Jesus forever, but rather the end of our faith is and should be the salvation of other people of other people. It's interesting in verse 8, he ties it to joy. Now let's take a look at Hebrews 12 to see what, um, what the author here talks about when he's describing the motivation of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, the joy that motivated Jesus to and through the cross experience, despising the shame, continuing to suffer for you and for me, was in fact you and me. The joy that was set before Jesus, I have put together this fancy acronym, uh, joy stands for that there is just one you. Jesus' joy is that there's just one you. He would have died just for one. Notice what we read in The Desire of Ages. She writes, The Savior would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. 
every soul is as fully known to Jesus as if it were the only one for whom the Savior died. We get our message and our mission from Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate missionary who, for the joy set before him, Jesus' joy was you. Jesus thought to himself, I have to go to the cross. I have to preach the gospel. I have to be the gospel, the good news, that if people accept me, they can have eternal life because he couldn't imagine not giving you the opportunity to accept him, to live with him in eternity forevermore. Notice what we read at the end, near the end of the great controversy. Um, we read on page 647, with unutterable love, Jesus welcomes his faithful ones to the joy of their Lord. The Savior's joy is in seeing in the kingdom of glory the souls that have been saved by his agony. And the redeemed will be sharers in his joy as they behold among the blessed those whom they, who, they ha who have been won to Christ through their prayers, their labors, and their loving sacrifice. As they gather about the great white throne, gladness unspeakable will fill their hearts when they behold those whom they have won for Christ and see that one has gained others and these still others. What a beautiful picture of the end of God's mission the salvation of souls. Yes, it's good news that you are there, but it's even better news that you are there along with those that you had influenced to accept Jesus for eternal life through your prayers, through your labors, and through your loving sacrifice. The end of God's mission should be and must be kept in mind to motivate us and to continue to keep us on focus as we study the message and we go forth proclaiming that message, which is our end time mission. Let's read now a few more verses that Paul talks about the salvation of others as his great motivation and the end of his faith. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, do you not know, excuse me, do you not know that those who run it in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So here Paul is likening the, 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 this, this Christian faith as a race of which he's running in order to win the prize of an imperishable crown. And he's saying he's disciplining his body, right? Being faithful in all things so that he doesn't be disqualified in this race. Now, what is that prize, that imperishable crown that Paul is running for? That's the symbol, but what's the reality? Notice he says a few verses later, verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partakers of it with you. Paul's ultimate focus, the end of his mission, was recognizing the souls that he would influence for eternity. I love the title of this book. Now, I haven't read this book, so I can't wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, I'm sure it has lots of good things in it, but I love the name of this book written by Mark uh, Cahill. I think that's how you pronounce it. And the title of the book is One Thing You Can't do in heaven. One thing you can't do in heaven. The one thing that you cannot do in heaven, friends, is be a missionary to the lost. The one thing you cannot do in heaven is preach the gospel to a desperate, in-need soul who is perishing in this world of sin. It's only now, while we are still living in a world of sin filled with sinners that we can preach the gospel to them. I put it this way. There's good news and there's bad news when we get to heaven, and it's the same news. The good news is this. There's no sinners, but the bad news is also that there's no sinners, meaning that unless the sinner now in this life accepts Jesus in order to have eternal life, they will be lost throughout eternity. Notice, uh, I'm going to read from page 11, the first sentences of this book. The author writes, 300 million years from now, what will be the only thing that will matter? Will it matter how much money you made? Will it matter what kind of car you drove? Will it matter who won the NCAA football and basketball titles this year? Will it matter who you took to the homecoming dance? 300 million years from now, the only thing that will matter is whether you're in heaven or hell, whether you have eternal life or you're sleeping an eternal death forever. And if that is the only thing that will matter then, that should be one of our greatest concerns now. The real question then is, what are you doing of significance today that will matter 300 million plus years from now? Those are some good questions to ask. There's one thing you can't do in heaven, and that is preach the gospel to the lost. And that is what we are to be doing today. I want to end with a story um, that, uh, of a testimony that I experienced about 10 years ago. Early on in college, when I had a revival in my own life, I couldn't help but sharing with other people what Jesus had done for me. The salvation that I had experienced, I was compelled to share with other people. And one day, I don't have time to get into all the details, but one day I was with my friend named Tony, and he was someone who was not a Christian, was in the world doing worldly things, and I was sharing with him uh, about what was going on in my life, and I was excited to you know, to, to live for Jesus and, 
And I had never been as happy as I had been following after Jesus. And he had some questions and concerns and about the Bible. And so we began to, to, to talk about these things. And I began to share with him uh, my own testimony. But then I share with him prophecy. I began to break down to him within the appropriate context and understanding that he could grasp the three angels' messages. And I really focused on the very, very end. And as I was explaining to him the closing scenes of human history as we will know it, describing the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the saints in the beloved city and the lost outside of the beloved city, I began to appeal to him and I told him, Tony, I plan on being in the city and I want you right there next to me. I don't want to see you outside in the lake of fire. I want you inside, next to me, next to Jesus. And as I began to paint this picture to him and I appealed to him with tears, he began to cry, I began to cry. And I said, even more than me wanting to be there, excuse me, me wanting you to be there, Jesus wants you to be there. And it led him to tears and he said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And we began to have Bible studies after that. But my point here, friends, is that when we keep the end of all things in mind, noticing, reminding ourselves that at the end of time, there's the lost and the saved and there's no more opportunity after the final judgment for the lost to be saved. This should compel us to give all that we have proclaiming this message to a lost world today. I hope you have learned something this lesson and will be motivated to go out and proclaim the gospel message in these last days that we're living in. God bless you. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.